So we've been here about 24 hours. The proof of success is that you're here, that you haven't followed those thoughts that may have thought said to you, let's go down to Fairfax and get a pizza, or get some cappuccino, or why don't I book a hotel in Point Reyes, or as one woman said on retreat, I could be sipping Chardonnay in Napa Valley. Why am I here with painful knees and aching back? Or another person said, you know, I'd rather be at work. (laughs) At least I feel like I'm doing something. (laughs) At least I know what I'm doing, sort of. So, sometimes the first day, no matter how rosy our expectations, how ambitious our plans for our practice and how long we've studied these teachings that sometimes the first day or more can be humbling. Anybody feel humbled by their mind today? (laughs) Yeah, you're in the right planet and the right species. Yeah, That's why this is called a training. That's why it's called practice. There's one teacher whose answer to most questions is more practice is required. More practice is required. So, there's a a Zen cartoon, uh, there's a whole line of monks sitting all diligently and there's one guy on his cell phone saying, what, get me the hell out of here. (laughs) What what am I doing here? Which reminds me of another cartoon, I'm a big fan of cartoons and there's a, it's a three-caption cartoon, and the first caption says the history of man, and the second caption is a guy scratching his chin going, what the hell is happening here? And the third caption is the end. <laughs> so we're in the middle. <laughs> in case you were wondering, what am I doing here? What is this body and mind? What is this practice? What is this thing called life? What is this thing called mindfulness, which is what I'm going to talk about in a minute? What is this retreat? Who are these people? Why am I here? And why is it not easy? Why aren't I enlightened yet? So I could now retire and, you know, do something else. So these are good questions. What am I doing here? What is this life? What is this mind? What is awareness? What is this thing called me? Well, I, why do I seem to cause such problems for myself? Why aren't I residing at peace? Beautiful place, beautiful food, beautiful people, beautiful weather. How come the mind is not at ease? I always find this an interesting reflection. I was teaching at Esalen a couple of weeks ago, which is a beautiful retreat center on the California coast in Big Sur, it's spectacular. And I always say this is a great place to practice mindfulness because why wouldn't you want to be present to paradise? And yet, and yet, what happens? Just like anywhere else, we're not so present for various reasons, which we'll talk about in in a minute. So I was, uh, so I'm going to talk about mindfulness this evening, and I wanted to give a um, sort of a Dharma context, a Buddhist contextual view on mindfulness. 
And so uh, this is a little um, behind the scenes um, uh, moment here. So I was writing this talk and uh, feeling like it was a little dry and a little academic, not academic, but a little um, heady. And I was thinking, is this the best talk? And I, re- and I was, and so I chatted with Bob about various talks I could give. And I realized for me, teach, giving a talk on mindfulness is one of the hardest things to talk about because there's so much to talk about. Many of you here could give multiple talks on mindfulness and probably do. So to condense all that into 45 minutes is an impossible task because you have to leave most of it out. So the question is, what do you leave out? So I threw that talk out and started again <laughs> about 35 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so mindfulness. So I want to I inquire into, into the, the dimensions or some dimensions of mindfulness. And I want to ask you to uh, uh, listen with fresh ears. Yeah, to approach with a spirit of inquiry. Because right? you know, having practiced in this tradition and this practice for 30 years, mindfulness is still one of those terms and experiences that is somewhat indefinable because it, it covers such a broad sweep of our experience. And it has many layers and textures and you know it can be it is defined in different ways, um, and yet it's uh, just like talking about awareness right? and the relationship between mindfulness and awareness, right? Subtle, complex, simple, hard to put into words, right? What is awareness? How do you des- how do you describe that which is ungraspable? So, so to bring this spirit of inquiry to the talk, but mostly to your practice. What is it to be mindful? And all the dimensions of that. So, and it's, you know, as you know, as I mentioned yesterday, it's, it's, a, it's a booming, <laughs> booming cottage industry. Um, with many rippling uh, effects and, and impacts in all kinds of unusual and unexpected areas. I was um, asked to teach a series of mindfulness meditations for British Airways onboard entertainment health and wellness section for the A380 Airbuses, <laughs> which has a potential of reaching about 3 million people a year. Um, so I did it for that reason, that what else people are going to do after watching five bad movies. They go, okay, I'll check the health and wellness. Let's see what they have to say. I'll stretch my neck a little. Oh, mindfulness. Oh, wow, I've heard about that. I've got no excuse now not to practice because I can't go anywhere. So um, it's fascinating having started 30 years ago where mindfulness was really uh, unheard of and meditation was obscure and Buddhism was weird and cultish to now have it be, you know, on the front page of Time magazine. And um, I just actually Googled mindfulness and now it's up to 26 million um, pages. I think uh, I did that last, you know, two years ago and it was 19 million pages. 
So there's a proliferation in, in all domains. So what is mindfulness? What is mindfulness without referring to John's definition? Anybody like to say? In a few words, what is mindfulness? Just shout it out. Being present, being aware, paying attention. Paying attention on purpose, John's description is creeping in. What else? But intentionality, yes, I want to, uh, sorry? Personal journey. Personal journey, uh-huh. Without judgment. Without judgment, uh-huh. So non-judgmental attention. Uh-huh. Alert and relax. Alert and relax, right? So qualities of mindfulness. Becoming intimate with the flow of experience. What else? I'm, in, 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 in the teacher trainings that I lead, I have the trainees go off into groups for about four or five people and, and come up with their own definition. And it's really amazing to hear the multiplicity of definitions and dimensions. What was this someone said over here? Responsive, not reactive. Responsive, not reactive. Yeah. Buddha mind, Buddha mind, yeah, okay. So you can just, in that, you can hear the textures and flavors and dimensions of mindfulness, right? And some of those, some of those words that were shouted out, I would say point to what mindfulness is. Some point to its qualities or characteristics. Some of those words point to its function and some point to its uh, effect. So, for instance, um, non-judgment is an aspect of mindfulness, but it's not mindfulness. So calm calm is is an outcome of mindfulness, I would say. Clarity is one of the functions of mindfulness that it supports clarity. So there's different, different, there's like, it's like this multifaceted jewel. And in the center of that is uh, awareness. So I think in John's original definition, mindfulness is paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, and then later added, mindfulness is the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally, etc. And then he later added, for the purpose of developing wisdom and understanding. So again, here you have the development of someone's thinking and understanding, and refinement, and getting closer to the tradition in some ways, particularly adding wisdom and understanding. So um, I simply use the, the definition clear awareness. Mindfulness is clear awareness. It's a clarity of knowing. Clarity of knowing you, what's happening in your experience as it unfolds moment by moment. I don't use that long definition. It's clear awareness. That's how I like to frame it. Um, some scholar friends in England and Europe um, who, are, who are sort of trying to excavate the, the, the source meaning of the word sati, which is the original 
uh, Pali word, um, which has its root in memory and remembering, um, they like to use the what they consider an, an accurate, and every, every translator and scholar has their own accurate definition of their current thinking is present moment recollection. Present moment recollection as, as a scholarly, precise definition of what mindfulness translates in English. Right? But it's not a very user-friendly. Can you just be present moment recollectedness of that um, thing over there? <laughs> It's, it's a mindfulness is um, you know, just like when I teach in France or in Germany or in Holland or in Spain or other countries I've taught in that the, you know similarly different languages don't necessarily have the the, the range that English does. Uh, some have more, some have less, and so there's an equal problem in translation. You go from Pali to English to uh, Spain. And there's equal challenges because there's not a word for awareness in the same way that there is in English. So we want to hold these uh, these definitions lightly, right? and also and again come back to our direct experience. What does it mean to be mindful in my experience? What does it mean to be aware? What does it mean to have clarity of awareness? So. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because as mindfulness becomes more well-known, then the possibility for misconstruing it grows exponentially, as you probably uh, discovered. People will come to your classes and your therapy rooms and whatever and have all kinds of ideas about what mindfulness is, right? Like being a good person, you know, or being nice, or... Um, not judging, right? Or not forgetting things, you know. Good luck to that one. I'm, I'm, uh, even though they say, you know, with mindfulness, one, it improves memory, right? Because there's a certain sense of recollectedness. Um, I'm forever forgetting things and losing things. So every time that happens, I, instead of listening to my critic, who has some things to say about, Mr. Mindfulness teacher losing things, I just say, oh, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. <laughs> and laugh. Because that happens, right? Shit happens. We lose our keys. We lose our wallets or whatever. So, but the, my point is that um, the, there's, a, there's a growing association with mindfulness meaning attention, paying attention. And it's so much more than that. That's so much dimensionality to that particularly if you read the early Buddhist texts and understand the, the, the complexity. So one dimension of mindfulness is that it has a contemplative quality. Not contemplative in the way we, we use that word in Western th- philosophical thought of to think about, but it's to, like, it's to hold in one's hand. So we're, we're paying attention to the breath as Upandita, uh, Saito Upandita um, from Burma, we talk about rubbing the belly of the breath. We hold in our hand, say the breath, and we contemplate that experience. We feel its texture. We feel its changing nature. We feel its uh, uh, insubstantial nature. We feel how it's related and dependent on different 
conditions, including our state of mind and our, and our body. And so it has a contemplative quality to it that we see for the changing nature is one, is one, one uh, mm, avenue that we can explore through mindful awareness. So this is a quote from Achan Mun, who is the teacher of Achan Char and many other great Thai forest masters. He said, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanent, unsatisfactory and selfless nature of the body while sitting, walking, standing or lying down in your investigation of the world. So with mindfulness, we investigate, we probe, we explore, we feel into, we become intimate with experience, with ourselves, with our mind, with our body, with phenomena. Right? It's not just paying attention, but it's paying attention in a particular way that is rich and subtle. And in the, again, in the text, sat, the word sati is often twinned with the word sampajanya, which means clear comprehension. Right? So we're understanding the context of what we're paying attention to, the context of our inner experience, the relationships, the causal relationships. So a simple example of this, I was teaching a course here some time ago, and uh, a yogi who's a med- it's a word for a meditator came in, came into the talk late, um, was very self-conscious, got to his seat, was beating himself up. But you know, we were midway into the retreat, so he had a fair amount of mindfulness, awareness developed. And so he was noticing his judging mind, noticing the critic, noticing the negative thoughts, noticing feeling self-conscious and feeling embarrassed for coming in late. And as that was held with a mindful attention, the thoughts, because he wasn't clinging to them, they, they, were, they sort of just, you know, through, with that Teflon mind, they released... And what came was it was a soft kindness of feeling the tenderness of how painful it is for himself to be beating himself up for, for doing something as simple as and as innocuous as coming into a talk late. So that's clearly comprehending. Our oh, thoughts are like this. Judgments are like this. Pain is like this. So in that quality of, of knowing, of awareness, one of the aspects, one of the flavors of, of mindfulness is it's non-interfering. And I really like this, this definition, non-interfering awareness. Where we're simply present with our experience. And with that non-interference, we actually have the spaciousness to see it more clearly. So an important part of what we try to emphasize here is, the, is the, the orientation of mindfulness being an embodied practice. And so the question came up earlier today about watching, observing, um, and a lot of our language around mindfulness has that flavor of, and I'm going to speak a little about to the, some of the... Um, uh, metaphors that the Buddha used. Uh, he used the, the metaphor of the watchtower, as if standing at high from a high tower and surveying one's experience. Right. So again, it has. It can have that flavor of removal, of separating. 
But that's not actually what what mindfulness is. It's actually an intimacy. It's a connected uh, contact with experience. And it's it's this, and there's a subtle dialectic between that intimacy and the non-interfering, right? Because with intimacy we, we we think sticky, but actually mindfulness has this Teflon quality that's also able to be with experience, but also to be somewhat non-involved, right? so we can see things coming and going. One of my favorite metaphors that the Buddha used for mindfulness is the metaphor of the cow herder. So in India, if you go out into the country, you'll see there's a lot, you know, it's mostly, uh, you know, farms and then um, uh, herds of cows and bullocks and and then there's usually a child who's tending the, the, the herd, mostly to, avoid, to stop them from trampling on the, the, the crops. Um, but the metaphor, there's, there's two, two aspects of the metaphor that Buddha uses. One is that um, the, the metaphor of the cow herder, when the, when the crops are high, then the attention of the cow herder is very alert. It's very precise, very, very responsive in case the cows start meandering into a, into a pasture. And then the other the flavor of the metaphor is when, it's, um, when the, the, the crops have been uh, harvested, then the, the, the cow herder is much more like sitting in the shade with the back against the tree, relaxed and tranquil. And so mindfulness has, as someone spoke back there, of um, having these qualities of relaxed alertness. So noticing where you lean on the spectrum of, you know, cat over the mouse hole, gonna grab that breath, I'm not gonna let it go, and I'm gonna be mindful, I'm gonna get this thing, I'm gonna nail it by day two, right? (laughs) Or I'm gonna, well, I'm just gonna let see it all happen, it's all good, it's all one, I'm just gonna, you know, just be mellow and, you know, space out a little bit. Where are you on the spectrum of relaxed and alert? And, and, and meditation is a constant balance of those two. And another reference to the cow herder is that mindfulness supports the mind staying in its proper pasture. And I'll talk a little more later about what the proper pasture is. Right, so, and was, well, I'll, I'll speak to it right now, which is another metaphor is. Um, the mindfulness as the gatekeeper, like in, in, in an old walled city, a gatekeeper would guard the city and 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 uh, grill the people who would come in uh, to see whether they were friendly or hostile. Um, similarly, mindfulness provides that function of um, not just paying attention to experience, but also knowing the nature of experience and knowing whether. Uh, our experience, our thoughts, our reactions are wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful, whether they lead to our well-being or whether they lead to stress. So this is a really essential function of mindfulness is it monitors our experience. So when we're noticing our thoughts, we're noticing when the thoughts are causing pain, like self-judging or when our thoughts are actually supportive, or reflective, or insightful. 
So another metaphor is um, the mindfulness is like a surgeon's probe. So a surgeon's probe goes very close, very intimate with experience. So a contemporary analogy is it's like uh, the, the lens of a camera or of a telescope. Right? Sometimes we're very precise. Right? We're paying very microscopic attention to some the nuance of sensation. And sometimes our attention is very global. We're, we're outside at night, we're lying on the bench looking up at the night sky, and we have a very vast lens of awareness. And so as we become dexterous with practice, we know when it, what lens, what type of focus is appropriate. Right? When you're listening to somebody, you want a very focused attention. When you want to drive you know, in the freeway, you want a wide open awareness. Right? Or walking through nature. So a little about the context in which the teachings of mindfulness are taught uh, in the Buddhist tradition. So um, there's a few sort of overarching frameworks you you could say for for Buddhist teaching. One is um, the framework of the threefold way. That the the path of practice has three components, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Mindfulness, obviously, is an aspect of the meditation triad. Mindfulness in support of wisdom that cultivates understanding. So the second framework is the Eightfold Path, which the Threefold Way can be divided up into the Eightfold Path. So mindfulness is is part of the, the meditation component of the Eightfold Path, which involves wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And we balance those three in our meditation. Wise energy, cultivating wholesome qualities, releasing unwholesome qualities, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating steadiness of mind. In support of what? In support of clarity, which cultivates understanding and insight. So the, the, um, the second or the, the third of that threefold way we cultivate wisdom and understanding which then what informs our life, informs our actions, informs our ethical choices, informs our, the way we talk, the way we work, the way we are in the world. Right? So, so mindfulness is part of this really beautiful uh, holistic system, not in isolation. Right? And of course, culturally, uh, mindfulness often gets plucked out of that rich tapestry um, and therefore, some of its depth is missed. This is um, the Buddha from one of the texts. He says, Just as in the last month of the rains in autumn, when the sky is clear and cloudless, the sun on ascending the sky overpowers the space immersed in darkness shines and dazzles. In the same way, all skillful qualities are rooted in mindfulness, converge in mindfulness, and mindfulness is reckoned amongst, reckoned to be the foremost among them. So mindfulness is this basis from which skillful qualities can arise. And when I skillful, I mean wholesome, which means supporting of happiness and well-being and peace. 
So for those who are interested in some of this, and I realize many of you, this might be not that interesting, but if it is interesting, um, uh, there's a wonderful uh, uh, piece of writing by Gombrich, who's a wonderful early Buddhist scholar. And he has a book called How Buddhism Began. And he's particularly interested in the contextual milieu of which and when the Buddha was teaching, which helps you understand why and how and where these mindfulness teachings came from, why he taught them in the way that he did. So, for the Buddha, the, the, the view was the, the practice of mindfulness was in service of liberation, was in service of relieving ourselves from the grip of the forces of habits of mind that cause pain and distress. Anybody want some of that? That yeah, sounds good. All right. He says, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow, for the disappearance of grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of peace, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So Bob mentioned this yesterday that, you know, and in the con- again, in the context of the tradition, there's wise mindfulness and there's unwise mindfulness, which is an interesting thing to contemplate. What would unwise mindfulness be? If you take mindfulness in the context of that which is onward leading to well-being and happiness for oneself and others, then unwise mindfulness is when we use that quality of attention in service of ends that aren't skillful. So, a pickpocket is very, you could say, has you know high degree of alertness and attentiveness, right? but not skillful, right? or a burglar, or a sniper, right? and we have some very interesting ethical questions arising when um, mindfulness is taught to the military, devoid of the ethical context, and therefore people are becoming better snipers. What is your relationship to that? It's one of these open questions. You know, there's, there's the interesting data in the research that mindfulness and yoga nidra and other practices um, support the ability to self-regulate uh, in, the con- in, 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 the, in the midst of conflict. And therefore, of course, we want people in combat to be better self-regulated so their emotions don't flare up and we have massacres that happen because soldiers can't contain their distress, right? So, you know, or, you know, people trading on Wall Street. I used to work with a trader, you know, and you could say, well, is that really mindfulness? Is that in in service of wholesome fruits? Hard to say from the outside. It's easy. There's a lot of there's a lot of debate about the mindfulness world, um, which some of you are probably privy to the uh, debates, and um, mostly the the debates are written by people who have never actually taught mindfulness, or at least in the in the context that they're critiquing. So I do a lot of teaching in businesses, and um, you know, people can be critical of that. Oh, well, you're just supporting the, you know, the, the capitalist machine and you're ex- supporting 
corporations to exploit people, just making them a little less stress tolerant so they can work them harder and all of that. Some of that may be true, I don't know. Um, But what I do know is, as you know, when you're teaching mindfulness to people, people are people, people are suffering. The place that people suffer most is at work. And these practices can relieve suffering. That's what I rest my uh, confidence in the practice. So when I asked you what the definition of mindfulness was, I heard several qualities. And there are certain supportive qualities that are really... um, They say that mindfulness uh, draws wholesome qualities towards it. And I think we need uh, certain qualities that that allow mindfulness to flower. One of them, which I mentioned yesterday, is patience. It's very easy to be impatient with ourselves and patient with our mind. Anybody lost patience with their mind today, their wandering mind? Yeah, it gets a little frustrating, right? Pay attention. Okay, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to pay attention like a soldier. I'm going to be so, and then we're on the battlefield. Yeah, I'm really, what am I doing? I'm a spirit rock. I'm paying attention to my breath. What happened? I'm now playing video games of soldiers. Um, another quality, beginner's mind, that I think we mentioned today. You know, mindfulness does bring a freshness of perspective. When we're really present, when we're in presence, Everything is quite alive. When we're in our conceptual mind, that's just a bell, that's just a flower, yeah, it's an oak tree, yeah, it's a person, yeah, it's another meal, yeah, it's, you know, sunny day, what and so what. But when we begin as mind, that freshness, that quality of vividness is much more available. So notice when that's available, when it's absent. There's a poem I like from Mary Oliver that sort of speaks to this quality of beginner's mind. She says, um, in black water woods, the toss waters have settled after a night of rain. I dip in my cupped hands. I drink for a while. It falls, it tastes like stone, like leaves like fire, it falls deep into my body, waking the bones. I hear them whispering inside saying, oh, what was that beautiful thing that just happened? What was that beautiful thing that just happened? She drank some water, right? But drank water with this presence of awareness, right? This presence of mindfulness, this beginner's mind in which everything is a miracle including mindfulness and awareness itself. Mindfulness has a flavor of what's called bare attention, where we're simply stripping the concepts and the preferences and the overlays and the judgments and the comparisons, and we're just being with the experience as it is, which is easier said than done where we can experience that with our breath, with anything really. And again, it has a um, a different quality when we're not seeing it through the lens of our mind and concepts. This is a poem from Kohad who writes, I cast my brush aside, from here on I'll speak to the moon face to face. 
is the quality of bare attention. And then lastly, uh, and again, sometimes language breaks down, but mindfulness uh, has within it, you could say, the quality um, of allowing, the quality of accepting. It's, it's not, mindfulness isn't allowing, but it has within it the component to receive and allow experience to be as it is. And again, without that quality of acceptance, it's hard to be with something, right? Because if we're not accepting something, what are we doing? We're resisting, we're fighting, we're hating, we're avoiding, we're suppressing. So to notice as you're sitting and walking and eating and resting, notice, you know, so there's three simple questions you can ask, am I present? What am I aware of? There's actually quite a few questions you can ask, but am I present? What am I aware of? How am I being aware? Am I aware with a quality of allowing, with a quality of rejection, a quality of boredom, of, of intense rapture, of curiosity? So mindful of the thing, mindful of the quality in which we're paying attention. Because if we're in contention, we're suffering. If we're in resistance, we're suffering. If we're in any kind of rejection, we're suffering. So this is from, um, I think from uh, Zen teacher Chosen Bays, who writes about this principle um, in this passing moment, I vow to choose what is. If there is cost, I choose to pay. If there is need, I choose to give. If there is pain, I choose to feel. If there is sorrow, I choose to grieve. When burning, I choose heat. When calm, I choose peace. When starving, I choose hunger. When happy, I choose joy. Whom I encounter, I choose to meet. What I shoulder, I choose to bear. When it is my death, I choose to die. Where this takes me, I choose to go. Being with what is, I respond to what is. Being with what is, I respond to what is. So that speaks to another facet of mindfulness. When we allow things to be as they are, we can be with them as they are, know them as they are, it sets the stage for allowing an appropriate response. If we're not able to allow and accept and receive, then there's some kind of tension and reaction. When there's that allowing quality of acceptance, presence, then there's a response, an appropriate response possible. So noticing right now, what your quality of mindfulness is like. Are you aware? Are you awake? How are you being aware? What's the quality of your attention? Are you bored? Some of you look very tired. Some of you uh, look like you're listening. (laughs) Some of you, who knows? 
So I don't mind particularly, but I would like you to be curious about your experience. What is your experience in this moment? How are you meeting it? Is this quality of mindfulness available? And if so, what's the quality of mindfulness like? Is it clear? Is it bright? Is it dull? Is it curious? Are you present just to the words or are you listening to your body? Did you forget about your body for the last 30 minutes? When I listen listen to talks, I listen mostly through my body. I don't like to look at the person speaking because I find it distracting. So I lower my gaze or close my eyes and I'm I'm sensing the words and I'm sensing how experience is touching and rippling inside in response. Like I do when I listen to music or when I'm outside in nature, I often I'm very aware of how this organism is responding in relationship to the environment. So we want that's partly a so as as, as we cultivate mindful awareness that's embodied, we want to really keep a lot of our attention here. One of my teachers I studied with, I had a friend who studied with him too, and he was in a group with him. And someone was complaining, they said, um, how come you never give me your full attention? And this teacher said, I never give anybody my full attention. And the student said, what do you mean? He said, I'm, I have about 60 or 70% of my attention in my inner experience at all times. And he's the most profound awake teacher I know, partly because of that rich process of mindful inquiry that he's constantly engaged in. So that's what we practice when we're walking, when we're standing, when we're eating. What's, what's happening in here as I move through space, as I, as I wash the dishes in the kitchen, as I sweep the bathrooms? So the Buddha talked about mindfulness of body as, as one's best friend. Right? The body is a friend, as an ally, because the body is always in the present. The senses are always in the present, right? The five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Right? If you're aware of those in any moment, then you're in the present moment. Usually we're not so aware, we're, we're in the sixth sense, in our coconut. Right? We're thinking and planning and ruminating and whatever, commenting about the other five senses. So mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath, the Buddha called this the first foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana. And it's a wonderful field of exploration. Or not, but can be. A, he gave this metaphor of practicing mindfulness as if you're walking through a crowded marketplace crowded bazaar, and uh, you've got a pot of boiling hot oil on your head that's filled to the brim, and you're supposed to be following this, this very sexy dancer through the market, and there's a person behind you with a raised sword who is gonna cut your head off if you spill just a drop of oil, right? He said, practice mindfulness of body like that. Not with the fear. <laughs> <laughs> but with the with the embodied presence 
that that would take. You know, sometimes I, I love when I, in India, and watching a, a building site and the, the women, the men are going up the ladders and incredible, you know, feats of navigation with a huge weight of bricks on their head and this incredible poise and dignity, beautiful quality of mindfulness. So the Buddha said, the meditator acts clearly knowing, right? so again, this is another dimension of mindfulness. The, and again, the language breaks down here because when we think knowing, we think intellectual and we think head. Right? We think, oh, knowing is, back to this idea of observing, watching. Um, but mindfulness is knowing, is knowing our experience, knowing what's unfolding. The, the meditator acts clearly knowing when eating and drinking and tasting, clearly knowing when defecating and urinating, clearly knowing when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. That kind of covers the bases. <laughs> As in, there's no breaks. You may have noticed there's no breaks on the schedule. In the bathroom in Bodhgaya where I used to practice, there was a sign in the toilet that said, pee here now. <laughs> And the other sign that said, the best place to let go. <laughs> and, you know, so it sounds like a nice idea, well, I'll be present in my body, that doesn't sound too difficult. But of course, there are many reasons why we don't want to be in our body, right? Because it's painful, because it's achy, because it's a storehouse of strong emotions, because of all kinds of things. So to notice your relationship to wanting to be present for inhabiting your body. Right? If, you f- if you have a lot of anxiety or fear in your belly, in your solar plexus, not so easy to be with. Right? There's a reason why we move upstairs, because right? it's easier to be with the thoughts. But we practice, right? the practice, this is a lab, right? Meditation is a lab, the retreat's a lab. It's a lab for what? It's a lab for life. It's a lab for how do you bring this quality of mindful awareness into your life, into your difficult meetings, into your conflictual conversations, into your challenges with parenting, into your challenges with seeing loved ones sick and dying. Right? The point of your practice is to, is to serve you in your life. Right? We come here it's not easy to come here. It's beautiful here. We lure you, you know, come to Spirit Rock. It's so beautiful, grassy hills, and Bambi's walking around. <laughs> but it's actually work, right? It's a work retreat, right? It's spiritual work, right? To be present without distraction is work. Sometimes it's very delicious and beautiful and easeful when there's a lot of samadhi, the collectedness of mind, but a lot of the other times, it's work, it's effort. Right? It's courageous effort, particularly if what you're experiencing is difficult, which for many of you, you know, through times in the day, is how many people experience difficulty today? Just raise your hand. Physical, emotional, mental, yeah, right. Welcome to the human race. Um, so, so I salute you for hanging in here. You know, it's not so easy. We've got no gadgets to jump on, no, no screens to get lost in no lattes to drown our sorrows in, you know. Some nice, you know, green beans, you know, there's so many you can eat, you know. Doesn't quite, you know, lentil soup doesn't quite fill that, that hole. 
had a pretty big bowl today, but still, you know, there's, if there's emptiness in there, it's still empty, you know. So this is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love, and then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all, and that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. Right? So we cultivate this beautiful quality of mindfulness. We strengthen it, we grow this, this invisible muscle of awareness to support us. You know, when we're being wheeled into the gurney, on the gurney, into the operating theater, and I've heard many stories of people going into the operating theater and, or prior to, um, and, re- and, and feeling like the only thing, the only refuge they have was their breath, because that's what they'd practiced for 10, 20 years. And that was a ballast in the midst of the storm. You know, when I, once I was teaching an MBSR class, and uh, it was probably on week, I think it was week five, and a woman came in who, this is in a chronic pain clinic uh, up in Sonoma, and um, she came in and she was particularly happy even though she had a lot of physical pain, and she said, and I said, what's, you know, what's been going on? She said, you know, after 10 years of living with chronic pain, this chronic stabbing, piercing, uh, pain in my neck. Um, when I was sitting, I decided to see if I could really just drop into the sensations and not buy into the fear and the catastrophizing and the contraction. I was able to release some of the contraction. I was able to feel the very nub of the wound that I haven't really been able to feel for years because I've been so contracted and tight and resistant and fear around it. And she said it was a tremendous relief to feel the essence of the pain, even though, of course, as you know, it doesn't make the pain go away, but her capacity to tolerate her threshold grew and her freedom in relationship started to grow. That's a very liberating moment for someone who has, you know, the the medical system has no, 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 nothing left to offer. So that's why we practice, whether it's for our heart pain, uh, physical pain, uh, the uncertainty, the unknown. Just heard of a family friend who died suddenly, 53 years old, um, of no unknown causes. No unknown causes. Three days ago. Healthy, a little red wine, in too much, you know, but you know, basically healthy. And you just don't know. So I'm on page three of 54. No, just kidding. (laughs) You know, as I said at the beginning of the talk, you know, I barely touched the surface. And I feel like I've been just pointing out little facets of this jewel of mindfulness. This has not been a strictly linear talk. Um, but you know, just giving a little fleshing out and pointing to some of the dimensions of mindfulness. 
So I'm mindful of the time. I'm just going to see if there's anything else I'd like to uh, highlight before I wrap up. So one of the beautiful things that happens as you establish and deepen in this practice, as many of you probably know, that mindfulness becomes second nature. That this quality of awareness, you can't imagine, I can't imagine, one can't imagine living without this quality of awareness and knowing that now perfumes experience as you become a, you know, a developed practitioner. It's, it's, you know, as I often give this meditation instruction, try not to be aware. Try not to be mindful. Try not to notice anything. Good luck. Right? What happens? Well, you know, things are known. Things are always being known in awareness. And here's the mystery. Awareness is always present, and yet we're not. Who is the I that's not present? Who is the I that drove to Spirit Rock and can't remember whether they took the freeway or the back way through Sir Francis Drake because I wasn't consciously present to the experience, even though clearly awareness was functioning, otherwise the car would have crashed. This is mysterious. And it speaks to mindfulness being one important aspect, if not the most important aspect of mindfulness is it's the conscious knowing of experience, the conscious knowing of awareness. You know, we're homo sapiens sapiens, the twice knowing ones. We're aware that we're aware. Awareness is happening all the time. The brain is processing millions of data points per second, per microsecond. Where the brain, the brain gives conscious attention, a little distillation of that, of that mosaic. And so to be curious, I find this fascinating when I'm meditating, how we go in and out of consciousness, how we go in and out of conscious awareness. We can be, you know, laser sharp, present to the breath, and as if we will never ever lose mindfulness ever again. And then two seconds later, an image pops in of the breath like a cloud, and suddenly all we're aware of is a cloud. And what happened to the breath? And it's like, I was there, whoever the eye is, awareness was laser sharp, and it morphed. What happened? There was a moment of unconsciousness. That's fascinating to me. So I, I hope, what I, what I wish for you is you become fascinated with awareness, you become fascinated with mindfulness, you become fascinated with the, with the seeming moving in and out of conscious attention. What happened? As you get up from your seat tonight, as you go to the door, notice how many times you, you're not there. Where do you go? What happens? It's a, it's a mystery. So be baffled by the mystery and be curious and pay attention. So let's sit for a moment.
Am I aware in this moment? What am I aware of? What are you aware of? And how are you being aware? And from time to time, you can ask the question, what is being aware? What is knowing? What is this mystery of awareness? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.